In the TIPBS podcast, you get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to the TIPBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. Hello and welcome to the TIPBS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. In this episode, we interview psychotherapist and parent educator, Brian Post. Brian is one of America's foremost child behaviour experts and founder of the Post Institute for Family-Centred Therapy. The Post Institute works with adults, children and families struggling with early life trauma and the impact on the development of the mind-body system. A renowned clinician, lecturer and author, Brian has travelled throughout the world providing expert treatment and consultation. Brian is interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy. I hope you find this interview interesting and useful. Brian, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Govind. Um, so I might just start perhaps with you um, sharing with us a little bit about your background and what got you interested in um, working with children um, with challenging behaviors? Well, I think that ultimately it was my own my own imprints um, as a child. I was adopted, spent a little time in foster care, and grew up in a home with pretty traditional parents, um, lots of spanking and yelling and things of that nature. But both of my both my sister and I were adopted, not biological. So we both had challenges. I had behavioral challenges. Um, I wrote a book called The Great Behavior Breakdown, and, and I have done a lot of those behaviors as a kid. But my sister, what was unique is that she had challenges too, but she was emotionally stunted in her development. And it was that perfect kind of emotional arrestment that she experienced that combined with my parents' Uh, real parentified, um, unconscious stuff themselves. And it just made this perfect little mix of, uh, of, of World War III in my home growing up. So um, my parents and my sister especially had a really conflictual relationship. And I, I think that at some level that just kind of drove me to, to understand, although for years and years, all the way through um, undergraduate, graduate school, I, I, for the most part, blame my sister um, for, the, for the problems and for the challenges. And it wasn't until I was deep into my clinical work and started to, to do some therapy work myself and have some real breakthroughs around emotions and families that I, that I realized just how, how, how much we had been wrong about her. And I had remember saying to my mom that what my sister needed was understanding. They just didn't understand her. And um, she had eventually said that to me 
Um, my sister was killed in a car wreck wow. almost eight years ago. And that was one of the things my, my mom said. She said, you know what your sister needed, but she never got. And I said, what's that? She said, understanding. Wow. We just never understood her. And it's so true. They, they didn't. But during that time, you know, it was, you know, I was right along with everyone else and blaming her for being immature, blaming her for, for being defiant, not listening to my parents, not doing what she's supposed to do. But we were all clueless of the fact that she was emotionally immature. I mean, we just, we were clueless of the fact that, number one, she was traumatized, and that's why she was developmentally stunted. But, you know, we, we get into these situations, and we just don't understand. We move into survival. We're doing the best we can. And so for years and years, I feel like kind of what guided my work was that kind of unconscious drive to get parents and kids to be able to get along with one another and I remember um, vividly in in, because I don't know what when I started doing it but at some point in my early in my career I started being more mindful of myself during my therapy work I was working with a mom and a and a child and I remember just really being so intense about this kid, you know, listening to his mother. And then I realized, wow, you know, something's, something's not matching up here. There's something in this relationship dynamic in my therapy work with them that's not making this click. It doesn't feel right to me. And that was like one of the, one of the beginnings of my um, kind of evolution into a a next level of working with children and working with families. And so it's just been interesting um, kind of how that progressed. But to answer your question, um, more, more than not, it was just my own family and how I had, how I had grown up. And I will tell you, I didn't go to college to be a social worker or therapist. I mean, I went to college to play football. And when I got tired of playing football, I just happened to stumble into a social work class and I enjoyed it. It was easy. And then when I finished my undergraduate, I only went to graduate school because I got accepted into the advanced standing program. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any other options, you know. So I'm like, well, you know, I'll go ahead and get my master's degree. It's only going to be another year. And so that kind of, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how things just line up. Mm-hmm. But I met my, my first uh, mentor in graduate school, and he had been a psychotherapist for years and years and years. And that's what steered me towards the clinical, kind of the clinical track. Mm. That's such a powerful story about your family, Brian. I've, I have heard you talk about that before, but it's still such a compelling story. I just had two questions, if you don't mind me asking about that. Um, often with our work, we um, get families where siblings react very differently to kind of the upbringing. And sometimes there's invitations to sort of minimize um, the impact of whatever had happened on the kids, you know, because you see one child coping quite well and the other not. What are your thoughts about the differences between you and your sister? And um, Well, I think that's a very good question. And the truth is, we don't minimize it. We don't acknowledge it at all. Yeah. Um, the majority of, of parents, professionals, um, they don't acknowledge at all. And I would say this is for biological children, adopted children, foster mm. children. There's no acknowledgement of the history. Mm. And the reality is, Govinda is that when my mom said, when we picked you up as a baby, you were smiling. When we picked your sister up, she was crying. And that was, that was a a critical, 
a critical moment in the, the blueprints of the relationship. And my sister, she was, she was premature. I mean, she was three months premature. She was exposed in utero to alcohol, perhaps drugs. She had to be in an incubator for three months. She weighed three pounds when she was born. I mean, she just started off with crappy circumstances. Mm-hmm. And she was never able to catch up. She, she had stress compounded on her after stress. And I just didn't. I mean, my mother, I've met my biological mother. She said she loved being pregnant. She said she didn't drink. She didn't do drugs. She didn't smoke. She loved being pregnant. She, she was not going to be able to, to keep me. I have three other half siblings oh. older than me. But she said for those first seven months of, of in utero, it was, it was blissful. And I, I believe that. I feel that in my core. And that created a foundation for me. Um, not that I wasn't impacted hmm. by the subsequent, you know, she said at seven months, she just kind of got depressed and, and, and stopped trying to even realize that I was there. Hmm. So I know that experience as well, hmm. because I know that moving from her womb out into the world was probably the scariest experience of my life. Hmm. But she said that those first seven months, she loved being pregnant. And that just set me and my sister up in completely different ways. And then you have the way our parents related to us different night and day you have the way the the school professionals the teachers related to me and my sister completely different you have the way the pair that our peers related to one another completely different so it was night and day there was no there is even extended family night and day there were no similarities between the way my sister was raised the way I was raised between her early her early development and my early development. Mm-hmm. So when we minimize those mm-hmm. early those early experiences, and when we don't acknowledge those early experiences, we're doing a, a disservice and injustice from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I'll say is, you, it's not that you have to know because I'm you know I'm always working with with foster parents or adoptive parents, and they don't know they don't know the history. Uh, it's it's that you have to honor the history and see we're all smart people it doesn't take it doesn't take a vast amount of empathy to uh, just say if this child was placed in foster care when he was two years old because of circumstances of neglect watch a freaking video they're out there you can see what that looks like what that's similar to and have some empathy and some awareness and you don't have to know all the details of this child's life but you have to you have to honor the pain that they have experienced that has shaped their brain, what shapes their, their emotions, what shapes their, their behavior and their thinking. You have to honor that. And even bigger than that, we have to honor that for ourselves. Uh, That's the piece. Ultimately, let me get real. I'm just gonna get real with you here for a minute. All right, here we go. (laughs) That's the piece that is missing in mental health. that's missing in mental health isn't any of the stuff that we, you know, any of the theories or the, the tools and techniques we come up with children. It's we have not honored our own pain as mm. clinicians and parents and professionals and teacher educators. We, we haven't honored our own pain. So we don't, we're, we're half the time we're projecting on the children. Mm. We're taking their stuff personal, but because we haven't honored our own pain, well, that which you cannot see in yourself, you cannot see in another. And so we can't see stress and fear beyond behavior problems, beyond anger. We can't see any of that because we won't honor it for ourselves. Mm. 
we feel like because we've gotten older, because we've gotten out of our le- out of our emotional hemisphere more into our our left hemisphere, that that stuff doesn't matter. But that stuff creates the lens through which we see the world. Mm. And until we get real honest about the pain and the suffering that we have all gone through, that we all go through every single day, then it, we're going to continue to say really good things about what the brain is and, and trauma and being trauma informed, but we're going to keep doing the same crappy stuff to kids. Mm. You know, it's like when people talk about being trauma informed and then they give you some cognitive behavioral practice, that doesn't make sense. Mm. That's, mm. that's a, that's a paradox. That's an oxymoron. Yeah. You can't, you can't fully understand trauma and then focus on the child's behavior. Mm-hmm. They're, they're two different things. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I wanted, that's our society. I wanted to ask you about that, Brian. And, and I, I was going to save it for later, but I'll ask you that now. Cause I was reading um, a paper recently about um, the therapeutic use of yourself. You know, often I think um, we, especially with teachers, sometimes when you work with these challenging kids, it often brings out a lot of your vulnerabilities. You know, we often say, you know, they're going to push you <laughs> um, to the point where your skills are going to be challenged, your patience is going to be challenged. And often, from what you're saying, it's, it's an opportunity for growth and kind of insight into yourself, really, isn't it? And, and from your work, it seems as though that insight, you use that in some way with the kids, you know, use that some way in your work. Would that be right? It's it's that's absolutely accurate. And yeah. you said you called that the therapeutic use of yourself. Yeah. I like I like that because what I say is you you know there was a time I, I don't know about in Australia but here in the states yeah. people would say man don't be a tool don't be a tool dude and it was kind of a derogatory don't be a tool yeah. but the reality is is we are the tool when it comes to working with children. Mm. We are the tool and we have to understand ourselves Mm. so that we can effectively understand and help children understand themselves. Mm. So yes, what we bring to the table Mm. is 80% of the problem. It's 80% of the solution. I mean, it's, it's, that's the answer is what we bring to the table because we all have to go through a process of healing. Healing is a process. There's no quick fix. There's no resolution. I mean, it's, it's, it's a process that we go through because we all are growing up all the time. It's life. It's development. You can't force development. So when, we, when a child is put in front of us, that child is relying on the, the regulatory capacities that we are communicating and expressing to that child on a nonverbal level more than any other level, more than anything that we say. And a lot of times more than anything that we do, it's just what we're experiencing uh, on on an emotional vibratory level. Mm. Um, So this probably leads into the next question, Brian, about um, just raising people's awareness about, you know, what those early beginnings, compromised beginnings actually do to children. But what have you, I've watched you <laughs> give many lectures, I've, I've read some of your books, and what would be one metaphor that you find often cuts through quite quickly to, with people to help them understand and become aware of those early beginnings? Well, one is that, um, one I use quite often mm. is, trauma trauma causes causes the immune system to be depleted Mm. so a child who's experienced trauma has a weakened immune system and stress is like the flu so when you place a, a traumatized child 
in an environment with stress, they're the first ones to get sick because they've got a weakened immune system. The stress makes them sick. And when they get sick, they start acting out through their behaviors. So it's, it's like you have to realize that this child is, is I always say stress sensitive and fearful. Mm. When they experience stress, they're sensitive to it and it increases their fear. Yeah. And that's probably, that's probably one of the most common metaphors that I use. You know, yeah. another one is a family, this loving family goes on a picnic and everyone's happy and has smiles on their face, but no one sees that the little traumatized child, someone's shooting arrows in their back. Yeah. And the traumatized child doesn't even know that they're getting the arrows shooting in their back. They're just feeling the pain. And pretty soon the pain gets unbearable and they start acting crazy and no one else sees the arrows. Yeah. But it's because of the trauma showing up in the, in the most pleasant situations. The trauma shows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so part of with the program, part of what we're trying to do is to um, help teachers with um, kids who, who are particularly challenging. And a lot of those children we have the most trouble with that often have a history of trauma. Uh, what were your thoughts about the role of education um, and perhaps even some of your thoughts about what teachers can do to help some of these kids? Uh, actually, I have, a, I have an excellent thought about the role of okay. education. And, and it, it starts with, <clears throat> it starts with a, a statement of scientific finding from Joseph Ledeau. He's a New York University neuroscientist. He wrote The Emotional Brain. In his book, he says, in times of stress, our thinking becomes confused and distorted and our short-term memory is suppressed. Okay? So in times of stress, we are not thinking clearly and we cannot remember. If I could get teachers to internalize that and realize that before children can learn effectively, you must get them in a calm, regulated state. That if you punish a child, you're going to stress them out. They cannot learn. If they are stressed and you're trying to educate them, they cannot remember. Their short-term memory is suppressed. If I could get educators just to realize that, no, it's not your job to emotionally raise these children, but when they're in your classroom, you are the significant regulatory figure. And your first job is to get your children regulated. Now, most teachers, 70% of the classroom, there's not going to be an issue because these children come from decent homes. I send my kid to school this morning. I drive him to school. We're chatting. He gets up. He's hanging out. He's got breakfast. Most kids, no problem. They'll deal with a little bit of stress. You know, they may get upset. They can regulate themselves. They've got oxytocin, a healthy oxytocin response. They come back home at the end of the day complaining about their teacher. They go to bed, they get up, and they do it all over again. But a traumatized child who's got very little healthy oxytocin response, he's got very little diminished regulatory, sustained regulatory capacity, he is is relying on that teacher first and foremost to help him stay regulated, to feel safe, to keep his sensory system from being overwhelmed. And when that teacher can provide that, that, that student, Oh, and this is the beauty of trauma, actually. That kid, because of his trauma, actually will excel mm. even faster than, than, a, than a normal kid. Mm. But we, we've got to realize that kids who have been exposed to trauma, they get stressed out too easily. And the other thing that educators really need to consider when it comes to working with traumatized children is that 
most traumatized children are not auditory or visual learners. They're mm -hmm. kinesthetic learners. Mm -hmm. So they've got to be moving. Just by nature of their trauma, which is like PTSD, they stay hypervigilant. So asking this kid to stay still is like asking this child to sit and wait to get hit. Who can possibly do that? Oh. Who wants to sit and wait and get attacked or get assaulted? So these kids have to keep moving. And as long as they can move and have that predictability and safety for themselves, then they can focus cognitively. Oh. And so getting teachers to understand the kinesthetic learner oh. is also really important. Yeah. Um, I just want to pick up on a point you were making there before, Brian, just about how when you help some of these um, kids who've got challenging behaviors, they actually excel um, and go quite far. You know, they, they, it's almost like you're tapping into some hidden potential. And it was reminding me of a conversation we had with a um, professor, Victor Rios, and he has a TED talk as well about, you know, changing our mindset about these kids and sort of seeing them at risk to seeing them as having potential. Could you speak to that a little bit about kind of attending to what potential some of these children actually have? Well, it's the, it's the, it's the two sides of trauma. Yeah. I mean, we look at trauma as this really negative thing, but the truth and reality is that anytime we've achieved great things and anyone who's achieved anything great, they have a significant amount of trauma in their background. And that goes from every president to Oprah Winfrey to, yeah. to Bill Gates to Donald Trump. I mean, the the trauma is is there. We just don't we just don't honor the fact that what trauma does is it causes the left hemisphere to overcompensate, and it you know it suppresses the right hemisphere and causes the left hemisphere to overcompensate, which is then therefore creating an individual or an individual with the capacity to think differently, to learn, to learn, you know, at a greater level. Mm. There's an, there's an author of a book. Um, his name's, his name. Oh, the book's called flow is, is the, his name is uh, mixed Mikhail Mikhail something. He's a Russian scientist. Yeah. And, um, in the book, he says, if you want to create a genius, emotionally neglect the child. Mm. Because what the right hemisphere doesn't get, the left hemisphere overcompensates for. That's mm. crazy, but that's trauma. Mm. Any, any child, that, almost every child that's grown up in an environment of neglect mm. has, a, has a fascinating capacity for looking and seeing and thinking about things differently. Mm. Thinking on a whole other level than what normal people think on. Mm, yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about um, something that teachers struggle with, with in school is finding that balance between um, following the child's lead in terms of building a relationship and, and building trust, while at the same time holding some level of sort of um, authority and control and, um, you know, order in the class. Yeah. yeah. And, and let, me, let me tell you where, so... That's a it's a great question, yep. but it's 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 multi yeah, it's multi-layered yeah. mm. because you said following the child's lead um, versus having some kind of control and authority. So there those are two different emotional experiences. One is a loving as a loving experience, the other is a fearful experience. Mm. The only time we seek to be in control, the only time we seek to be uh, in authority mm. is when we are scared, is when we are operating out of fear. So relationship allows you to influence behavior. So the key is relationship. Bruce Perry says 
We are all biologically engineered to be in relationship. Every dendrite, every synapse, every cell is engineered to be in relationship. Therefore, and then I say, therefore, relationship is the single most important thing. If we truly believe that relationship was the most important thing, then we wouldn't worry about authority and control because we'd realize that by anchoring one another in relationship, we can influence behavior. That's what I always tell parents. Mm. Spend your time investing in being in relationship with your children, and then you don't need to be the authority figure. You don't need to be the, the powerful one. You don't need to be in control because then you have the capacity to influence your child, and that influence will last the lifespan. Mm. It won't just last until they're you know 18 years old. It'll last the lifespan. But the problem in our society is most parents, because of their stress and their fear, they use control and power and authority to dominate their children from zero up to 12. And then at 12, when the child hits adolescence, they're not going to be controlled anymore. Mm. But by then, the parent hasn't anchored in enough relationship. And because they haven't anchored in enough relationship, they can't influence the child. So now the child's not going to let them control them. And then before mm. you know it, the child's out there doing whatever it is that they're doing. Mm, mm. yeah it's investing in building trust and yeah and it doesn't take long mm. it doesn't take long it just takes a couple of repetitions of understanding of patience of, of reflecting of of being mindful that's all it, it requires it doesn't take a, a great deal of time and you know when kids are little give them hugs mm. when they get older give them high fives mm. i mean just be someone every one of us who've gone through school knows that there were the cool teachers and there were the teachers that no one could stand. Mm. The difference was the cool teachers used relationship and influence. The mm. other teachers were asses. No mm. one liked them. <laughs> and a lot of times they rebelled against them and defied them. Yeah. You know, so it, it's, 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 really, it's really simple. It just gets complicated when stress enters the dynamic. Mm. And what is your sense with that, Brian? I, I've heard some teachers talk about how and I, I can understand this, especially for kids who've had really difficult relationships with their parents. They, you know, they have attachment difficulties and things like that. So any effort to get close to them often gets they get pushed away. Or um, it, and and teachers, you know, because they're not therapists or whatever, you know, they often kind of um, get frustrated with that. What what would be your thoughts about um, building trust in those sort of situations? That's the part of teachers being educated and made aware. Mm. There should not be a school year mm. that starts without the consortium of teachers setting down and discussing every child that's got an IEP, mm. discussing every child who comes from foster care, comes from adoption. So those teachers can understand that these children are wired a little bit differently. They need a little bit more sensitivity. They need a little bit more understanding. They need a lot more awareness. They need a lot more patience. They need a lot more positive repetition. They need a lot more support. They really need us to circle around them and be in relationship with them from day one, from day one. When this kid walks into the school and he has, in his experience, saw all these adults as threatening, authoritative figures, from day one, if that school and those adults meet that kid in a loving, regulated, supportive way, he will not have any issues in school. Mm -hmm. But we don't do that. Mm 
Mm. We don't do that. We didn't, we ignore it. We wait four weeks into the school year before we ever have an IEP review. By then the kid's already in trouble. So when you have the IEP review, the individual education plan, I think you guys have yep. those in our yeah. When you finally have it, everyone's already in a fearful, stressed out, reactive place. Mm. It's just the difference between taking responsibility versus being reactive, practicing prevention instead of intervention. We just stress and fear don't allow us to use the brain that we need to be using. And that's our higher level brain. It keeps us rooted in this limbic brain system. Yeah, and I was thinking about that point you were making before about the you know hidden resources, you know, using those as opportunities to discuss strengths and opportunities for intervention as well, really, isn't it? Um, and not necessarily just management plans or whatever it is. Yeah, because management, as long as you're just managing, mm. then no one's thriving. That's just mm. surviving. Man, a management plan is just a survival plan. Mm. It's a plan mm. for how we survive. No one's thriving in that environment. No one feels good in that environment. Mm. I mean, no one feels joyful. And, and ultimately, we, get, we have to do better than that. And the only reason we don't do better than that is because we're not willing to ask the questions. Mm, we're not willing to, to just extend outside of our comfort because we're stressed. We're stressed out adults. Mm. There's, not an adult, there's not an adult at my son's school who ha isn't stressed at some level. Yeah. And when we're stressed, we, we move into survival. We just want to try to survive. Hmm. That probably leads into the next question, Brian, which is about how um, how kind of traumatic experiences affect families, but other groups of adults as well. And you talk about people feeling stressed out when um, kind of interacting with children. How do you kind of see that affecting family dynamics or dynamics within groups? You know what? It's it's all um, <laughs> it it's all um, primal. It's all primal brain communication. Mm. It has nothing, it really has very little to do with how old we are or the color of our skin or where we come from. It's all primal brain communication. You have a child who comes in with an activated amygdala and those vibrations activate everyone else's amygdala. Mm. And all of their, everyone's baggage is stored in our brainstem. Mm. So your amygdala turns on your brainstem. If you got baggage in your brainstem, which we all do, then it's going to get stirred up. So pretty soon you have a whole bunch of stirred up primal brain individuals, mm. you know, trying to figure out how to interact. And because we're adults, we, we think that that qualifies us to be the smarter, more logical, more, more rational. And it doesn't, mm. it doesn't, it's just a matter of, Who's, who's more stressed out than the other person? Because the person who's more stressed out is probably not the person you want to be listening to. Mm. And the person who's the least stressed out is probably the one who you need to be listening to. And you know who that happens to be in a lot of situations, Gavin? Yeah. Child. Yeah, that's child. quite true, actually. The child yeah. ends up being the least stressed of all the freaking stressed out adults. <laughs> and no one's listening to the child. They don't want to hear what the child has to say. But the child will tell them what is needed. You know, just ask the 10-year-old. Yeah. What do we ask the five-year-old? What do you think needs to happen? Well, we need to eat some ice cream. Heck yeah, everyone needs to eat some freaking ice cream. None of the adults are like, oh, no, we can't eat ice cream. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. Yeah. That's quite funny because it's almost as though the children are often relieved at that point when they see the adults like that because they've yeah. communicated some of their distress. Yeah, that's quite true. Yeah. 
Um, so I was curious to hear about, um, I think, you know, we may have discussed this already, but one mistake or trap that, you know, adults often fall into that you've seen when relating with children, was there one thing that you would kind of identify as a common pitfall, Brian? Well, the, the, probably the biggest pit, pitfall is taking the behavior personally but I want to qualify that because we hear that term used all the time. Don't take it personally or you're taking it personally. But the reason you have to understand why you take it personally. We take it personally because our brain is perceiving that behavior as a threat. And so we want to control or suppress or change that behavior, not for the child's sake. We want to do that for our sake because our brain's saying it's a threat and we want to eliminate that behavior. That's why we take it personally. The only way you don't take someone else's negative behavior personally is if you can be mindful enough to realize that it's their behavior, it's not a threat to you, and you're not going to die. And so we just, that's a, we have to, it's a real big leap to be able to do that. But until we can be able to look at someone, anyone's negative behavior, and especially a child's negative behavior, and say to ourselves, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. You know, no one's going to die here. I can calm down, and I can let the child be right where the child needs to be, and I can, I can calm myself down into a regulated state, and then I can influence that child's amygdala and help them realize that they're not going to die. See, mm-hmm. a kid doesn't know that they're not going to die, especially if they got trauma, because the brainstem's activated. Mm-hmm. But the adult has got to be able to step into a place to where they can say for themselves, I'm not going to die. I'm going to stop letting this kid's negative behavior stress me all out and take it all personal because it's, it's triggering all my brainstem stuff. Mm, that's such a nice way to describe that because the fear and panic they do feel it, it does feel like they're going to die isn't it that's that's it does it triggers the brainstem i mean it's autonomic nervous system Mm. it literally is survival and that's what people don't realize when when i'm talking about stress when i'm talking about fear i'm talking about survival i'm talking about the fact that your entire cellular system has moved into constriction Mm. and it is sending off an energy of survival it has nothing to do with well i'm not stressed out or i'm not scared it has nothing to do with that that kind of cognitive that cognitive framework with what we think of as stress and fear. Most of the time you're stressed out and you don't even realize I'm stressed out right now mm. because we're doing this talk and I'm excited and I'm passionate, mm. but I'm operating within my window of tolerance. And so I'm flowing, I'm flowing, but I'm stressed. Mm. My body temperature is up, mm. but this, this level of stress within a window of tolerance it's, it's where we operate. It's essential, but it's when we move outside of that window of tolerance where we move into being stressed out um, that, that becomes important. And in Alan Shore's book, Alan Shore, neuroscientist, uh, UCLA, um, wrote a book called Affect Regulation in the Brain. And in fact, he wrote three volumes, but in the beginning of, of his Affect Regulation in the Brain, the first volume, it says, it's a quote by Taylor et al., 1997, that it is believed that affect dysregulation is a fundamental mechanism involved in all psychiatric disorders. Mm. It is believed that affect dysregulation, being stressed out, is a Mm. fundamental mechanism involved Mm. in all psychiatric disorders. Mm. Think about that. Mm. That's such a huge statement. Mm. I mean, if that's true, my gosh, all we have to do with anyone who's ever been diagnosed or, or who's acting crazy Help them calm down. Mm, mm. Reduce the stress. Mm, mm. Reduce the stress. Mm, so, yeah. there you have it. <laughs> Thanks for that. I loved your energy. <laughs> I was just curious um, about 
your thoughts about kind of sociological influences, um, in particular about kind of race and privilege and things like that, and how that influences the recovery of particularly children and adolescents, really. Um, so it might be different in your context there, but I think there might be several parallels to um, how things work here. Did you have any thoughts about that, Brian? Um, you know, it's to me, it's all just compounded stress. Um, there's different, you know, if you, you think sociological, it, here in the U.S., it affects Australia, affects the whole world, Donald yeah. Trump. Yeah. He's a stressed out adolescent. I mean, he's a stressed out adolescent and he's stressing everyone else out. He's even stressing out his supporters. They won't acknowledge it, but he's str- he's making everyone afraid. Mm. And it just, you know, we're already a fearful society. So just at that level, you think about stress. So now parents are stressed and they're worried about the economy, which that flows down to the kids. And then you think about race. Just yesterday, a police officer, a female police officer was acquitted of charges of shooting an, un, an unarmed black man. Mm. This is you know, this is not the first time over the last year that this has just become more more and more pervasive, but then you have this other level of, of sociologic stress and fear where now you've got more black men and black people in general who already have all of these negative imprints about whites and authority positions, even being more heightened, having more heightened alert about, you know, police officer and, and, and whites in authority and then going to work and having that same, whether it's, it's all unconscious. See, so much of the stuff isn't conscious. When if it were conscious, if it were conscious, we'd have more control over it. It wouldn't impact us. It's the unconscious that creates the the strain. It, it's the unconscious that creates the chaos that if, that eventually leads to the explosion. See, we're not acknowledging the unconscious and how much this affects all of us. And by not acknowledging it, we, we lose our control over it. We lose our influence over it. So it, it plays out, you know, as much as in Australia as it does in any, any part of the world here in the U.S. And, and we all, we, if we could all just, just go into it with a, with a greater consciousness, a greater awareness, it would really help. Mm. Just to clarify, just to those listening, and when you say the unconscious, it's not this deep, dark, mysterious thing. I guess it's, it's would you say it's, you're referencing that need to be self-aware about what stress does to us and how, you know, how we have difficulties managing our emotions and how that influences how we interact with people. Is that right to say that, Brian? Yeah, our, our, um, when I talk about our unconscious, I'm just talking about our autopilot system. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. It's on autopilot, so we don't really pay attention, a lot of attention to it, but it influences 90% of our behaviors. And so mindfulness gives you, puts you in the pilot's seat and it allows you to take back control over the autopilot system. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're not, if we're not practicing mindfulness and consciousness and getting ourselves back into the seat and taking over the controls from the autopilot situation, then we just end up flying off all kinds of manners. You know, we never know where we're going to end up. Mm-hmm. So the unconscious is just the energy that drives drives us at, at the greater degree of, of, uh, of our everyday life and functioning. Mm. Thanks so much, Brian. That was really great. Uh, you've written a lot and um, you've got lots of resources on your website. I was wondering what you might be still be curious about when it comes to your work. Um, if I was curious about anything, it would be how, how to make the message more simple so that people could grasp it 
faster and begin, you know, changing their lives faster. Um, but then even then, I'm not even that curious about that because I really, I know that life is a process. It's a journey. Um, so at some level, I just trust that, you know, I communicate what I need to communicate. People are living their lives. I'm living my life. It's, we're all going to be where we need to be. And so we all have this, this individual, this individual journey, this individual process. So I guess in a lot of ways, I'm not that curious about anything. <laughs> that's that's a good way to be sometimes <laughs> I, do, I do plan to um i do plan to write one more book before mm -hmm. i before i finish out my mental my career in mental health and so that's it's going to be called trauma brain um helping helping challenging foster and adopted children at home and in school and so i hope to really be able to communicate um, much of what we've talked about in a way that people can take it and it makes sense and it helps them. It helps them to, to feel the capacity and the possibility of love when they, when they have felt so hopeless mm. and have been so mired in stress and fear. So that's, that's my goal with that book. That's great, Brian. We've covered a lot of ground. Did, did you have any final things you wanted to say or to educators or teachers in general, or do you feel like we've talked about? You know, the, my only closing thought, event is is that in any given in any given situation, we can we have, we have two choices. We can choose to react from fear and stress, or we can choose love. And so, I hope that that those listening will will give pause to that and choose love. That's great. Thank you so much, Brian. Now, did you want to just direct people to how they can get in touch with you or any resources that you might Post, have? Postinstitute.com, P-O-S-T, institute.com is our main, our main uh, website. And you can get lots of information there. And I've got lots of videos on YouTube. Just type in Brian Post Parenting, B-R-Y-A-N, P-O-S-T, Parenting, and you have lots of YouTube videos and lots of stuff out there. Thank you so much, Brian. I hope we get to speak again. Take care. All right. Peace, brother. See ya. Bye. That was our interview with Brian Post. Thank you to Brian for volunteering to share his wisdom and experience. To access the resources and websites discussed in the interview, check out the show notes by visiting our website at www.tipbs.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.